Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of Banal of America Audio, Season 2. It is March 24th, 2007, and this week our guest is Marie Jones, author of Science, How New Discoveries in Quantum Physics and New Science May Explain the Existence of Paranormal Phenomena. And that's pretty much a thumbnail sketch of what we're going to be talking about here on the program this week. We're going to delve into that antagonistic relationship between the esoteric and mainstream science, big picture questions regarding esoteric research as compared to this new science. We're going to get into a host of various alternative science topics like the multi-universe theories, multiple dimension stuff, zero-point field, all that alternative science stuff that you rarely hear discussed on BOA Audio. We're going to talk about it this week, and I'm going to try and clear up some of the stuff that confuses me with regards to these multiple dimension, multiple universe theories. Plus, deja vu, ancient religion, the contagious aspect of paranormal experiences, all that stuff, and tons more here in this week's edition of BOA Audio with Marie Jones, author of Science. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Marie Jones, let me give you a little bit of background on her. Marie D. Jones has been involved with the paranormal in one way or another for most of her life, which led to a fascination with quantum physics and the writing of her new book, Science, How New Discoveries in Quantum Physics and New Science May Explain the Existence of Paranormal Phenomena. Marie is also a New Thought-slash-Metaphysics minister and spiritual counselor. She holds a master's degree in metaphysical studies, has also studied Wicca, goddess traditions, mythology, and comparative religion. She worked as a field investigator for MUFON in Los Angeles and San Diego in the 1980s and 90s. Marie is a widely published author. Her book, Looking for God in All the Wrong Places, was chosen as the best spiritual religious book of 2003 by the popular book review website RebeccasReads.com, and the book made the top ten of 2003 list at MyShelf.com. Marie has also co-authored over three dozen inspirational books for Publication International slash New Seasons, including 100 Most Fascinating People in the Bible, Life-Changing Prayers, and God's Answer to Tough Questions. And her essays, articles, and stories have appeared in numerous publications. Married with one son, Max, she now resides in San Marcos, California, where she continues her pursuit for knowledge of both the natural and the supernatural. Her blog is science.blogspot.com, that's P-S-I-E-N-C-E dot blogspot.com, and her formal website is mariedjones.com, M-A-R-I-E-D-J-O-N-E-S dot com. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on February 6, 2007. Marie Jones on Banal of America Audio, Season 2. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. Our guest this week is the author of the exciting new book, Science, spelled P-S-I-E-N-C-E. Chances are, if you're into the esoteric, you've heard about science. It had quite a buzz around it when it came out. People are still talking about it, and it was one of the, the big books around the holiday season. The full title of the book is Science, How New Discoveries in Quantum Physics and New Science May Explain the Existence of Paranormal Phenomena. The author is Marie D. Jones, and she's here on the program with us today to discuss science and this strange uh, connection between the esoteric and the new science that's going on nowadays. So, Marie, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me on. Lots of interesting things to talk about. Yes, definitely. It's kind of hard to know where to start. That's the problem. Uh-huh. <laughs> Let's start with the obvious, your bio, your background, where you came from, and uh, how you gravitated toward um, the esoteric and the hard science. 
Well, I've always been interested in the paranormal and metaphysical things since I was a child. Mm -hmm. Don't know how that really started. It, I just came out that way. And I'm the daughter of a geophysicist, so I always had science books around the house. And I really grew up with those two worlds. You know, I sort of had a foot in each world. And I had some experiences as a child that, that led me to believe that there was a lot more to life than met the eye. Uh, but I also had that analytical science brain that I was raised with. Mm -hmm. So I was always able to kind of put the two together and see where there were common links and also see how one complemented the other. And as I became a teenager, I got really interested in the occult, as a lot of teenagers do. <laughs> and from there, I got into metaphysics and more spirituality. And through that... I started hearing about quantum physics, and this was, you know, 10, 15 years ago, yeah. and I did a lot of reading. I love to read, mm -hmm. um, and just kept hearing about these uh, these different discoveries and these laws of quantum mechanics and how they related to human consciousness, and I just started kind of finding these links between paranormal events that I was learning about and investigating on my own and what I was learning about in this whole brave new world of quantum physics. And, that's, and then I wrote a book. Well, there you go. And that's sort of how uh, science came about, right? Right. It, yeah, indeed. And now you uh, you cover in the, the book's divided up into three parts, which is cool. And uh, the first part sort of covers uh, various fields of the esoteric, and then the next part covers uh, the various fields of hard science. And then sort of right. the third part is a marriage of the two. Now, this is sort of a generic question, but I kind of figured I would ask you, because I remember I heard an interview with you that you said that the ghosts part was kind of your least favorite part of, <laughs> of science. So what was your favorite? I'm never going to live that down. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what was your favorite? Because you cover uh, ufology, ghosts, strange places, psychic abilities, and a lot of stuff that's contained within that realm. You know, I really love all aspects of the paranormal. I think I, I have a little bit of favoritism for the UFO subject because I spent so much time involved with the Mutual UFO Network and mm -hmm. Center for UFO Studies. And But I, I also really am drawn to the psi and ESP and psychic ability stuff yeah. because that is something that we can work with every day, and I think we see evidence of that in our own lives, much more so than sighting a UFO or having a ghostly encounter. So I think that stuff hits closest to home, and that's probably my favorite subject when it comes to the paranormal. Yeah. One of the things that, that sort of uh, comes up a lot here on the program, and, and uh, your book overcomes this problem, is the overall dissonance amongst the various esoteric fields. You know, the ghost people don't want much to do with the UFO <laughs> folks, and, you know... The, the, I don't get it. They're all looking for the same thing, the yeah. truth, you know, the truth is out there. Exactly. But I think it's like anything in life, you sort of, you get into cliques, yeah. you know, like in junior high school, <laughs> and you have your subject of interest that you're very passionate passionate about, and that's that's what your focus is on. But really, I think people that are involved in the paranormal need to understand that they're all looking at similar types of activity. Exactly. And a lot of times they can find some, maybe not necessarily answers, but they can get some good ideas about what's going on with ghosts by maybe looking a little bit at uh, Bermuda Triangle yeah. or energy vortices and how they work and time anomalies and and that leads more to learn about UFOs, and they're really all connected. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think that's something 
something that, that the uh, the esoteric field needs to kind of overcome is that, that they do. That I think it holds people thing. back a lot. Definitely, you know, definitely. Of categorizing things and refusing to get out of that category. Yeah. And then uh, in the in the chapter where you're talking about ghosts, uh, you make a really interesting point, and I uh, sort of wanted to delve into this a little bit about how. Uh, people are really reluctant to talk about their experiences unless uh, they're brought up. And you talk about how a lot of people have come to you. You bring up the subject uh, at, at a table or you're eating lunch or something, yeah. and then people will talk about theirs and say, oh, I never told anybody this. Why do you think people are so reluctant? And more importantly, really, what can we do to sort of overcome that reluctance and defeat the giggle factor that, that is a big problem? For I like that, the giggle factor. I think... It's, it is funny. If you're the first one, and this, I think, goes for talking about religion or politics or spirituality or anything, mm -hmm. it always takes that first person to bring the subject up, and then everybody's talking about it. I think if people sense that it's safe for them to tell you about something that happened or that they experienced, they'll open up. And I've always been able to bring that out in people. But I see it getting better and better because, and I hate to say this, because of the media. We've yeah. got these TV shows like The Ghost Whisperer and Medium and Supernatural. And all of a sudden, and we've always had shows like that, but they've always been a little bit more fantastical, like Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits. Now we're seeing these shows that are so mainstream, and they're really bringing the paranormal into people's homes, like yeah. it's a part of everyday life. And, and, you know, how often do we blame the media for something positive? <laughs> but in this case, I think it's been a really good thing for the whole field of, you know, paranormal phenomena. It's really helped make it more mainstream. Definitely, definitely. And as, that, as it becomes more mainstream, hopefully uh, the ridicule factor will lessen as well. I think it is. I really do. I think also movies like What the Bleep Do We Know yeah. have helped because they've attached a little bit of a scientific face on – the paranormal and metaphysics and that new age stuff. And in doing that, it's given people permission to say, oh, you know, this is this is kind of serious. Now we can talk about this seriously and not be laughed at. And then uh, one of the other things that you brought up in the in the Mind Unlimited chapter was uh, the serious problem of the lack of funding for esoteric research. Um, well, yeah, I mean, money talks. Yeah. And science, you know, they get funding as long as they stick with the status quo and they do research that kind of falls within the confines of what's already been done or what's deemed acceptable. Yeah. But if you're delving into consciousness research or you want to look at the brain, you know, it, does the brain operate like a hologram, you're not going to get money from sources that have a lot of money to give you. You're going to have to go out and raise it yourself mm -hmm. or find a benefactor that might be really interested in that research. You're not going to get published in the scientific journals. So really, you're going to operate as a maverick, and you're going to be operating outside of the normal base of activity. And that makes it more difficult for serious scientists who may want to do some research into something in the paranormal. And your book sort of focuses on uh, marrying these two worlds, the esoteric and the mainstream, um, and the mainstream science. Right. Um, how do you reconcile those two worlds? Because uh, the mainstream science... Um, like you said, they, they can't. They're they're not necessarily afraid, but it hurts them to sort of delve into the esoteric. And the esoteric people, they sort of um, they're almost resentful of mainstream science. science. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, what do you think? How do you reconcile those two things and, and sort of bring them together, or is it just going to be an instance where mainstream research is going to come up with the breakthrough for the esoteric people because uh, you know by accident? 
Well, if you look what's happening with guys like Dean Radin, mm -hmm. okay, he's a scientist. I mean, he's a, a got a PhD. Yeah. And he and he he's written books. He's kind of broken in through that back door of writing books. I think a lot of times that helps when you have scientists, theoretical physicists like Michio Kaku writing a book like Parallel Worlds, where he starts to introduce some of these more esoteric concepts. Because when you write a book, you have a lot more freedom. That gets them in that door where they can then get some of that research done, the way Dean Radin is. So I see that happening a lot more, that that people people in the scientific community are going to be writing more books as an entree into then saying, look, there's this huge interest in this. Let's do some research. On the other side, on the paranormal side, what's really neat is that a lot of groups that go out and do investigations, whether it's UFO, ghosts, whatever, are getting more scientific about keeping their, their data, sharing data, um, you know, coming up with more scientific methods for yeah. doing their experiments. So I think we're seeing the two coming together naturally because it hasn't worked the other way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. When they don't work together, nobody gets any progress made. And do you think that the mainstream uh, aspect of the science uh, will overcome that reluctance to accept the esoteric data, if you will? Because, uh, you know, there's lots and lots of information from people who research the paranormal, but... Uh, it doesn't quite count. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, that, that, do you think that speed bump will be, will be gotten over? The speed bump, unfortunately, is going to have to be removed by the scientific community. Yeah. They do have more power, unfortunately, in this instance because they have the respect and the authority with the public. Mm -hmm. The public, I mean, you could have millions of people who have had these experiences, and indeed we have millions of people in this country who have had a paranormal experience. But they themselves aren't even going to take it seriously until they hear a scientist say it's okay. So that speed bump has to be removed by the scientific community, but the great thing is that there are more and more scientists who are saying, hey, I'm really interested in some of these concepts. I'm going to write a book, or I'm going to go on uh, the sci-fi channel and talk about the Bermuda Triangle, and that's really helping to break new ground. Now we just got to get rid of those uh, those those mangy skeptics who... <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? They serve a great purpose, though. I mean, they keep everybody on their toes. Yeah, that's What true. I don't like are diehard skeptics yeah. because they're closed-minded. Yeah. But healthy skepticism, I think, is an absolute must. Oh, absolutely. And I think we all really are healthy skeptics. We see something, we experience something, the first thing we do is say, that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> but we're open-minded enough to say, wait a minute, maybe it did. <laughs> To sort of delve into the, the, the quantum area uh, in the book, that, that's pretty interesting in the sense that, that uh, it seems like as science looks closer and closer, they can get smaller and smaller. They seem to... Uh, it gets weirder and weirder. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Took the words right out of my mouth. Um, one of the big things that a lot of people talk about, and, and it sort of um, uh, is obviously covered a lot in the book, is, is this... Uh, this idea, or I don't know if even it must be a fact at this point that, that the intention shapes the experiment's outcome. Um, can you talk a little bit about about that sort of aspect that was discovered in in the quantum research? It's funny that you should mention that. There's a new book out by Lynn McTaggart, whose book first book on all of this stuff, the field, mm -hmm. uh, really kind of served as the catalyst for me wanting to write my book. Yeah. And her book is called The Intention Experiment, and it's all about scientific research going on with, with 
focused thought with intention on how it can change experiments at the quantum level. And basically, we do know for a fact that when you're dealing with the quantum level, the observer changes the outcome of any experiment. There's something going on. There's a connection between the observer and the outcome of the experiment. And so, and that lends itself to consciousness because it's really the only thing that could explain why something like that would happen. And, and what's really neat is that originally this was done just with, with particles. Um, can you place the position of a particle without compromising its momentum? And once you observe it, you, you can only do one or the other. You can never do both. So your active observation literally changes the structure and makeup of that particle. The particle is no longer in a state of superposition where it's everywhere and everything at once. Your act of observing it makes it a particular particle in a particular position. And that's a very profound and powerful concept. It actually, if you think about it, has very metaphysical uh, connotations. Yeah. Now what's happening is that people that are interested in, in researching, the real scientific people too, again, like Dean Radin and, and Russ, uh, uh, Russell Targ and Lynn McTaggart, is they're doing experiments now to see if thought itself is the catalyst. If that intention, that focused thought, having your consciousness so sharply focused on a thought creates energy that actually affects matter outside of the mind, outside of itself. Yeah. And so that's where this field is going. It's really exciting. And it's all based on one of the most fundamental concepts of quantum physics, that the observer affects the outcome of any experiment. One of the interesting parts about the book is how there's uh, there's sort of theories and, and ways to tie down what's going on on the quantum level and then ways to tie down what's going on on, on the big level. But you, there's no uh, way of tying them, the two together, and that seems to be what what is the is the end game for a lot of people in science? I think that's what everybody's looking for. It's like the holy grail. Yeah, you've you've got different theories and different ideas. Okay, well now how do you prove them? Because <laughs> of course yeah. you know we we humans have to prove everything. Yeah, but not just that. But how can you prove them to be consistent? Which is the scientific method? Can you reproduce a certain outcome consistently over and over and over again? Well, I'm not sure that the paranormal lends itself to that. Yeah. We may have to tweak the scientific method because I don't know that uh, things that happen at the quantum level are really based on probability. They're they're really not provable. Yeah. So therefore, how could you possibly prove them beyond a shadow of a doubt? on the more macrocosmic level. Really, the whole field is about probability, which is very confusing and frustrating. Yeah, that's one of the things that really holds uh, the paranormal back in the sense of scientific research is the, is the uh, repeatability factor. That, that always sees, is the stumbling block that, that hurts a lot of uh, paranormal research. And the thing is, is that it could be that paranormal events are not repeatable at the snap of a finger because there are outside elements that are involved. And if those elements aren't always lined up perfectly in place, you're not going to get the same outcome on exactly. Tuesday that you got on Monday. So it's a whole different ball game. kind of requires a whole different kind of scientific method than the one that we use to prove that, you know, water freezes at a certain temperature. I mean, we know that. We can do that over and over again. Yeah. But you can't get a ghost to show up just by 
snapping your fingers. Yeah, you know? exactly, exactly. It's a, it's, a, it's a tough road to hoe, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and you cover also uh, really well in the book. The, uh, i got to say, the book is a great education for uh, people like me who, who are on the peripheral of, of this alternative science world because it really gives you uh, a thumbnail sketch of a whole host of different theories and, um, and, and various avenues that are going on in research that you must have done just an amazing amount of research on the book because it, it, there's just so much covered in there. I did. I, I'm a research hound. I yeah. had article. I had hundreds of books and articles, and you know, a lot of it. Luckily, a lot of it was stuff that I had around the house anyway, because these are subjects that I was interested in. Yeah. And it was difficult because there's so much that I actually had to leave out of the book. I mean, you only have a certain amount of words that you can work with. Yeah. Yeah. But what I wanted to do was present. The basics of the paranormal, you know, and just in case people are coming into it for the first time and they yeah. don't know the history of UFOs, et cetera, and then a real basic sort of quantum physics 101 education <laughs> because I was learning a lot of this as I was going along too. And then, you know, how I could bring them together, which is the final third of the book. And I really had to write it as if I were writing for somebody like me as I was going along. Can I understand this? Does this make sense to me? I'm the average Joe. I'm yeah. not a scientist. That's important, though, because, uh, you know, you, you have to appeal to not just the hardcore audience, but the mainstream one as well. Well, I've read a lot of books by theoretical physicists that I had to put down because I couldn't. I couldn't get them. And I'm a fairly intelligent person, but they were filled with mathematical equations and, you know, X to the squared. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can't – don't talk to me in a language that I haven't spent eight years studying. <laughs> you know, talk to me in a language that I – of bigger concepts. Yeah. Break them down enough, and then if I'm interested, I'll go off and look on my own. And that's what I hoped to do with the book. If people are interested in many worlds theory or this or that – they could go off and get all those details on their own if they need to. And and in the book, you uh, you cover these the the multiple universe theories uh, from a number of different angles. Um, can you sort of give us a thumbnail sketch of of uh, the various schools of thought when it comes to the multiple multiple universe theory? I have here just just uh, relatively in the notes: inflation, holographic information. I mean, oh, there's, 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 so there's many. a lot of different. <laughs> yeah. Um, sort of just give us a thumbnail sketch. And what's the? Is there a leading one that's uh, like? you know, most likely to succeed uh, of the of the multiple universe theories? Well, you know, all of the quantum physicists and theoretical physicists and particle physicists, they're all looking for the theory of everything. And there seem to be an awful lot of good contenders. Um, I'll just kind of touch on it. Well, the inflation theory we're pretty sure is is provable that, you know, the universe expanded at a certain rate and in the inflation of matter created certain aspects of what we can now see. Mm -hmm. That's real basic. Yeah. Um, the holographic theory is the idea that we are a three-dimensional projection coming from a higher dimensional source. And, and that's real basic, just like a hologram is a projection coming from uh, the source, that a picture of a whole, yeah. a whole apple, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, believe it or not, that's actually one of the leading contenders for a theory of everything. There's a lot of research being done into the holographic brain and the holographic universe and how the two seem to work very similar. Um, the parallel universe theory, the idea that we are – one of possibly an infinite number of parallel universes coexisting right alongside each other. 
and the idea is that we probably can't communicate with them, but it's possible that we could be, and that could be where paranormal events are coming from. Let me just uh, let me just stop you here on this one. Now you say they exist. Uh, now obviously you don't saying this because <laughs> <laughs> you don't have a lab that I know of, um, but. You, uh, that these these universes exist like right next to each other. Um, and now we can't see them. <laughs> oh, yeah, except we can't see them. Now is this right. like literally within right next to each other, like outside my door, or like right next to each other from like the distance from here to Pluto? Like if you go past no, Pluto, literally, and they're right next to each other. There was a quote, and I can't remember who it came from. If it was uh, Michio Kaku or Brian Green or some somebody who's one of those theoretical physicists who write a lot about uh, alternate dimensions and. Yeah parallel universes, but the idea is that they, if they exist in dimensions that we do not have access to beyond the four dimensions that we live in, three of, of space and one of time, they could be at the tip of our nose. Yeah. They could be, you know, the air that we breathe. We could be immersed in parallel universes, but we don't have the ability to cross over into them or to, to perceive them. There, for a long time, has been the belief that they might be little teeny tiny curled up dimensions that you know are smaller than the pin of a or the head of a pin. And then you have some physicists coming and saying, "Well, you know, they could be of infinite size and proportion and be just massive, and we could be enveloped in one." And then there's things like M theory, where we are on a membrane. We're a three-dimensional little bubble universe mm -hmm. existing on a membrane, a big sheet of universes, and there are also other sheets, other membranes that coexist alongside ours. And some theoretical physicists believe that the Big Bang could have been caused by the, the meeting point of two membranes. So that's, you know, they could be anywhere Nobody really knows because it's all theoretical, but I think it's exciting that so many of these people believe that they do and, and probably have to exist in order to make our laws of physics really work. That is one of the exciting aspects of the, yeah. the whole uh, of the way science is going now is that they're really opening up uh, their eyes to the possibility of things that have been talked about in esoteric circles for a long time. Right, exactly. And, and the great religions have talked about this stuff from ancient times, and they were just looking at the same, you know, the same universe that we're looking, that the scientists are looking at, but they're yeah. using different language to explain alternate dimensions. And can you uh, touch on the information theory on the universe? Because that one I found particularly interesting and, and bizarre in a lot that of ways. That is really bizarre, and I just touched on it because there's some really great books that talk about information theory, that the idea that everything comes down to bits, bits and bits of quantum information that the whole universe is nothing but information and, and every other parallel universe, everything that exists. And the, how uh, creation sort of grows is that we know that information can sort of double back on itself and it snowballs. The more information you feed into a computer, it then can put those pieces of, of information together and come up with new information. So there's always this increase in the level of creation because there's this increase in the amount of information being processed. In other words, could the universe, could all, whatever exists, be a big, giant processor, you know, a big, giant computer? And that's one of the most cutting-edge areas of research 
for a theory of everything. And who knows, that could end up being the one that most people focus on. Obviously, a uh, study of science and, and, and trying to figure out how it all works and where it comes from and everything uh, butts up against religion in the sense that, uh, like when you say the holographic universe might be coming from some projector, then you're asking the question of, who's well, projecting? Yeah, or <laughs> whose computer is, is the information right. the universe running on? Um, where where does this science, um, where does it, it uh, stand in regards to where it all comes from? The more you read about science and nature even, the more you realize, and I'm going to be very careful how I word this, mm -hmm. because I do not believe in intelligent design, and I do not believe in a religious God figure. However, I do believe in a creative force. Yeah. And you can't help but believe in that when you look at the patterns in nature, when you look at the intricacies of quantum mechanics and even just, you know, the structure of a flower. And what happens is you begin to see that there is, I love the way George Lucas came up with the force, because to me, that's that really does describe what science is talking about when they talk about something like the zero-point field, mm -hmm. that there is this underlying ground state of energy that it permeates everything that we see and everything that's out there. Well, it's creative. Um, everything else springs forth from it. It's sort of a source of all sources. Now you start to get into that sort of metaphysical language and that's where religion and science really are on the same page. They're both talking about a creative life force that is intelligent. The problem is that religion will kind of take off with that and they'll personalize that intelligence. They'll make it either Jewish or Christian or Muslim or yeah. it has to look this way. It believes in these values and it, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And then you get into politics. And science, on the other hand, will try to depersonify that force to the point of almost making it dead. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like a machine. Mm -hmm. I think the truth is somewhere in between. I think religion and science are talking about the same thing. They just need to watch their language. There you go. Yeah. Spoken like a true mom. <laughs> I know. Really, huh? Um, watch what you say. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, one of the things that sort of is a stumbling block for me personally, and, and maybe you can explain this to me because uh, I guess I just didn't, didn't pay enough attention in science class, um, <laughs> and that's universes versus dimensions. Um, what's, the, what's the difference between a universe and a dimension? Because uh, they, they seem to, to kind of like be very similar. Yeah, and you're hearing – you nowadays I have the same problem. You hear them sort of talked about in the same regard. Yeah. I mean originally a – a universe was the sort of all-encompassing environment that we all exist in. Yeah. And a dimension was one point of perception mm -hmm. with depth, height, time. Well, now what, you're, what what's happening is when it, you bring up the idea that there are other dimensions that we're not aware of, we start to visualize those dimensions as being separate universes. Really, they're not. They're, they could be encompassed in a separate universe, but really they're just other modes of perceiving objects in our own universe that we just don't have access to. So I think, again, it's like we're playing tricks with language. Mm -hmm. When you tell somebody there's a, a fifth or sixth dimension, 
and they try to visualize that in their head, it just seems like a whole other universe to them. And that's where you get that sort of weird interchangeability between the two terms. It lends to confusion. Yeah, and you don't need to have a parallel universe to have other dimensions present. They could be present in your own universe. You just can't. Our brains are not designed to perceive yeah. beyond three spatial dimensions. And the way I kind of tried to wrap my mind around it was that maybe the dimensions are the parts of the universe. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about this multiple dimensions theories and, 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 and how there's also, aside from all these multiple universe theories, there's multiple <laughs> dimensions theories. It gets even more confusing. Exactly. <laughs> because not only could there be many different universes and they're trying to figure out what makes the universe and, and where it comes from and all that good stuff, but then we're looking at the parts of the universes, which right, is the dimensions. Exactly. Talk a little bit about the uh, multiple dimensions and how uh, science seems to think that maybe that 11 might be the magic number or 12, and, and, and who knows exactly what's and going on. And it all comes from math. <laughs> oh, no. Because Yeah, which I totally flunked, and, and still, <laughs> I can barely balance my checkbook, and at times I, I just don't even bother doing it. But when when theoretical physicists are trying to come up with their grand unified theory of everything, yeah. string theory is very popular. It's falling a little bit out of favor right now, but it's still it's still very popular. And that's the idea that the most fundamental um, energy is are these little teeny tiny vibrating strings, and they vibrate at different frequencies and. And, you know, depending on the intensity of vibration, that's what creates different types of matter. That's string theory very basically. Yeah. But what happened was in order for them to – theoretical physicists, all physicists, have to be able to break things down into a fundamental mathematical equation in order for things to work with our known laws of physics. Why that is, I don't know. That's just the way it is. <laughs> and if they can't – do the math, it doesn't work. And what happened is there were all these different string theories that were coming up. And no matter how they were doing the math, and, and I'm being very general here because I want people to understand, mm -hmm. they couldn't make it work with what we already know about gravity and, and you know the four fundamental forces, yada, yada, mm -hmm. unless they added more spatial dimensions. And each time they would add some dimensions, they were able to make the math work, but they might run into another problem down the road with something else, with, with gravity. Okay, yeah. this works, but it doesn't apply with the gravitational force. Let's add three more dimensions. Well, they're now at the point where it works, but it only works with, I believe, it's either 11 or 12 yeah. extra you know, spatial dimensions. And that's where the idea that we're not necessarily, when we look at an object and we see height, width, and depth, and we have a time element that it takes a certain amount of time to get from one end of your bedroom to the other, that there might be other aspects to how we can measure something mm -hmm. that we just, we don't perceive them because we don't need to. But at the quantum level, at the, you know, the particle level, the necessity is there. So that's where the alternate dimensions theory comes from. There was one theory called the boson string theory that required 26 dimensions. Oh, wow. So in other words, what they're doing is they're having to add extra dimensions in order to make the mathematics work behind these concepts because it is their belief, and I do agree with them, that math is the secret language of the universe. And I don't understand math, and I'm fascinated by it. But it does seem to be at the core of every pattern that makes up 
reality. And, and you sort of touch on something here that, that uh, I want to explore a little bit, and that's how we only perceive in the three dimensions and four if you add in time and that good stuff. How does science, how do these scientists go about even uh, testing and trying to prove things uh, as re with regards to dimensions that they can't even see or perceive? <laughs> good question. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that they're supposed to do this year is they're supposed to try at the particle laboratory in CERN, Switzerland. Yeah. Um, the accelerator, they're going to try to create a string. Mm -hmm. And if they can do that, first of all, they'll prove that they exist, and then they can kind of take it from there. The problem with extra dimensions is how do you visualize that? Yeah. And what they're doing is trying to come up with computer programs that will do it for us. Now, a hypercube is sort of a four-spatial-dimensional four figure. You can go on the Internet, and there's some really just Google Hypercube, and there's some really neat animation things that you can watch where they show a Hypercube, um, sort of a 360-degree view, mm -hmm. and you get a little bit of an idea of what a fourth spatial dimension might look like. There's also um, the Kalabai-Yau, which is a fifth spatial dimension figure, and it just looks like a big clump. <laughs> play, but there's an animation, and I think it's still available on the internet where you see it moving. And you now, on obviously, we can't quite grasp the full. Oh, that's it. That's yeah. five dimensions. Exactly. Yeah. But it gives you an idea of of what it might. It's sort of a precursor of what it might look like. Until we come up with that perfect computer program, and I have no doubt that we will, mm -hmm. we're not going to ever be able to visualize these things. Our brains are not wired that way. Yeah. Is it possible, or does science know if it's possible for humans to ad adopt the, the ability to see these other dimensions, or are we pretty much, are we, are we uh, tapped out at this point and we're not going to be able to pick it up? I think so, because brain research tells us that when you are exposed to a new experience, you create, you know, your, the neurons fire off new transmissions and you create new dendrites, new connections in the brain that mm -hmm. allow you to perceive that experience. And they always tell you that as you age, you know, senior citizens can keep their brains healthy by ha taking on new experiences. Because if you are put in a situation where you see something you've never seen before, well, you're creating that neural pathway to then begin seeing it all the time. And, and you can almost explain it as simple as if you, if you're going to go buy a new car and you decide you're going to buy a green Volkswagen. All of a sudden, you're going to see green Volkswagens everywhere. They've always been there, but you've never had a need to perceive them. Exactly. Now that you do have that need, you can't help but not see them. So brain research tells us that we can be perceiving a heck of a lot more than we do simply by having that first initial exposure to something new. One of the uh, interesting things that a lot of people talk about is uh, how children have a lot more paranormal experiences, and maybe that, that they are not conditioned to uh, disregard the, the perception of these extra dimensions and things like that. Do you think that's, that might oh, be going absolutely. on? Absolutely. I remember being a kid and seeing all kinds of things and hearing voice. I, I mean... You know, your parents tell you that it's just your imaginary friends or whatever. <laughs> but I think the children are born closer to 
the the purity of yeah. that conscious state. And as you become exposed to society and school and conditioning and outside information, you lose that ability. And I have a, a five-year-old son, and he is he's. We say that they're incredibly imaginative. Well, what is imagination? Imagination is the ability to perceive things that are not right there in front of you. And I absolutely believe. In fact, I'm really surprised that uh, people in the paranormal community are not doing more research into children, sitting with children, talking to them, uh, getting their experiences down on paper. I think that they hold the key because they're closest to that purity of yeah. consciousness. I've thought about that myself, actually. Uh, yeah, I'd love to see a book. Maybe yeah. I should write it. Yeah. <laughs> it would be interesting, yeah. It would yeah. be cool. You'd have to overcome the uh, uh, frightened parents, though. I don't know. <laughs> you would. You would, yeah. Um, and then you, you touched on the zero-point field. Can you talk a little bit about that, sort of uh, educate people a little bit about what it is and, and, and what you think point, it is? Yeah, I, I think if a lot of real cutting-edge scientists believe that this could be the big one, this could be the theory of everything. And basically the zero-point field is the ground state of energy, that energy vibrates um, in, at the lowest state possible. It's a very fundamental form of energy. Mm -hmm. And we always thought that empty space was empty, <laughs> but it's not. Apparently, there is this slight jiggle of energy that goes on, and, and it's at the most basic bottom level, zero point. And the idea is that if this energy is present everywhere, which is the belief, that it can be possibly used as a fuel source if we ever develop the technology to extract it in big enough quantities. There's also the belief that it's already being used as a fuel source by advanced civilizations that are coming here to see us. And that's how UFOs could be traveling. You can, I mean, it's self-regenerating. You can never run out of it. You fuel up as you go. You don't have to stop and do anything. But there's also the more metaphysical aspects. If this is the ground state of energy, the fundamental source from which everything else springs forth, all of the fundamental forces, all types of matter, energy, sources, whatever. Could this be similar to the Akashic records of Edgar Casey, the past, present, and future, the memory of every event, every intention, every action? And if this is the sort of repository field of everything, past, present, and future, then that would explain a lot of paranormal activity. Ghosts, are they energy coming up from the zero-point field, slipping into our reality? Psyability, ESP, are people able to tap into this field to see the past, to see the future? Um, energy vortices, are there spots on the planet Earth that you can access zero-point energy and, and create a whole host of an anomalies and events that don't occur everywhere else? So the zero-point field is really neat in terms of physics because it could be the one that brings together all the, the four fundamental forces and in terms of the paranormal because it really allows for everything, remote viewing, um, poltergeist activity, just yeah. everything. At the risk of getting too uh, scientifically esoteric here, is it possible? <laughs> is it possible that the zero point field is uh, is 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 one of the many dimensions? 
I don't think that's where the, the research is going. It seems that everything would be encompassed by the zero-point field, okay. all dimensions, all parallel universe. It's, it's really, I hate to use the word godlike, mm -hmm. but it is that sort of ground state of creation, of creative energy. And so dimensions exist within the zero-point field. Mm -hmm. Parallel universes exist within the zero-point okay. field. Okay, all right. It is um, the foundation almost. The foundation of everything. Okay. And that's putting it, you know, Simply. very general. <laughs> I would, I mean, that to me is the most fascinating thing I came across, and I would strongly suggest that people read up on it. Uh, it's got great implications, even just as a basic fuel source for us to one day fuel our homes and our cars, but also the metaphysical aspect of it. And uh, you touch on one sticky topic that uh, that definitely is, is is a big part of the esoteric, and that is um is that the zero point field could potentially be a source of anti gravity and unlimited free energy and all this great stuff everybody wants. Right. But of course, then we have to worry about the infamous powers that be. <laughs> And is Exxon it, Mobil and British exactly, Petroleum. Exactly. Yeah, I've, I mean, those comments have been made to me by people that have been doing research. And again, it comes down to who's going to fund you. Uh, if you come up with a way to extract ZPE, zero-point energy, uh, who's going to patent it? Who's going to buy you out? There is research going on right now into zero-point energy on behalf of Boeing, Um Oh, a couple of aeronautical, you know, big aerospace industries, the Department of Defense, NASA. So you can already see that the big powers that be are, are getting their claws in because they realize that if there is something to this, this is something that they could use as an alternative source of fuel. And, of course, they want to get their hands on it first, um, the extraction method, and patent it so then they could charge us an arm and a leg for what is basically free energy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But also, if it can be used for military purposes, that's always their number one, you know, what they're looking for. So do you think that the Sciences Act may be more advanced than we are, than we know and that it's kept in the black right now until they can figure out a way to put a meter on it, which is uh, sort of an old expression in the esoteric world? Right. Uh, do you think I that think, might be going on? Or do you I think definitely think that's always going on. There are always, you know, the Congress has a gigantic black budget that we have absolutely no access to. We have no idea what they're doing with it. So you can be sure that if scientists are talking about the zero-point field as the most cutting-edge concept of our time, you can be sure that some of that those black programs are involved in zero-point energy. If it's being done for sinister reasons, I, you know, I'm sure maybe some of it is. Yeah. But I think that there, the, obviously the authorities always want to stay one step ahead of other countries yeah, exactly. and the next guy. But you also have research that's being done by you know, individual scientists. So I think one way or the other we're going to find out if an extraction method becomes available, especially if the, you know, the the decline of fossil fuel availability really demands that somebody gives us that alternative or the people are going to riot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a good good way to get them to cough it up. Yeah. So if the oil runs out and people start going crazy, there'll be a <laughs> we, breakthrough suddenly. Yeah, all of a sudden, out yeah. of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, one really fascinating part of the book that you talk about is uh, paranormal events as con as contagious events, how uh, yeah. it sort of spreads around. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
that's strange phenomenon as far as paranormal events. It go. is, and it doesn't always happen. But I've so I've seen it happen enough, and I've heard other paranormal researchers talk about this idea of contagion of paranormal events almost being infectious. That if you have, you know, a person who sees a UFO, you might find several people in their family that have had sightings yeah. or abductions. Um, the same thing with ghosts, ESP, things like that. Mm -hmm. But I suspect that that's because of consciousness. When you're around people that are experiencing something, you tend to open your consciousness or at least align yourselves with them. You, it sort of becomes synchronous if you're, if you're an open-minded person. It also could be that there is something about mass consciousness that that allows for contagion, tipping point. You know, we hear about the book, The Tipping Point. If you have a certain number of people that are experiencing something, does it jump to another community or to another group of people? And that could be happening on a conscious level. If you hear about a bunch of ghostly apparitions in your neighborhood, you might have one because you're, oh, you're either be becoming aware of it where you never noticed it before or you're becoming open to something you've never been open to before. But there's also the possibility that what's happening is happening on a subconscious level. And there's some kind of trigger that allows experiences to jump from, and this happened, you know, during the 1600s with demonic possession where it would jump from one nun to another or one woman to another. And it's really interesting because I know a lot of people that have had UFO sightings that tell me, uh, my sister had one. Oh, and then, I, you know, my Aunt Jane did. Yeah. And it's just really strange. Or their neighbor did. And they're, you know, they found out that this person was had an abduction experience. And then this person did. And it really seems like catching a cold. It's almost like, uh, oh, what you said about the green green car thing, too, in a sense that if uh, perception, yeah, if you're in a haunt, if you're in a haunted house and you visit there all the time, and then one day they're like, you know, there's ghosts here, right? And the next time you come over, you might see the ghost. You see it, ta-da! Your awareness is totally changed. Your perception is totally changed. Yeah, it's just like people that are converted to different religions. I mean, they all of a sudden <laughs> they perceive a belief that wasn't they weren't aware of before. And yeah. it changes their whole life. One uh, personal anecdote you had in the store in the book that I wanted you to extrapolate on a little bit was this deja vu experience because you encourage yeah. you encourage people to uh, sort of roll with Try it. Try to when go you with it if you yeah. can. <laughs> so can you talk about what what happened here with your deja vu experience and when you went with it and and uh, what what went on with that? It's funny because ever since that I haven't had very many. I think maybe uh -oh. I, I by writing about it, but. I, I used, you know, usually I'll have a lot of deja vu, mm -hmm. and it'll last, I don't know, a few seconds. But what I started noticing as I was writing the book and doing the research is I thought, well, I kept hearing that, you know, deja vu, there's more to it than what we think. There's more to it than than memory. This goes beyond memory, because yeah. what you're doing is you're remembering something that's happening to you right now. And if you read about parallel universes, and other dimensions that we might be accessing, maybe what you're doing is for that 10 seconds accessing yourself in a parallel universe, doing exactly what you're doing now, but with a little tiny different result in that other universe. And so I would try to just sort of sink into the experience. My feeling is the minute you say to yourself, I'm having deja vu, you shut it down. 
the analyst, but if you can just, and, and I've done this successfully a few times where you just sort of sink into it, don't analyze, shut down the analytical brain, and you can start predicting to yourself what's going to happen next. As if you're walking between two worlds and you're observing, okay, I'm very similar in these two worlds, but in this one, I haven't quite done what I've done in this one yet. So let's look over here and see what I'm going to do next. <laughs> and it's really bizarre. And then when you come out of it, you really feel like, okay, did I access my existence in a parallel universe? Because according to these theoretical physicists, we would be alive in an infinite number of parallel universes, we would also be dead. We would not exist in some, and others we would, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, every possible potentiality is there. That's very uh, exciting. Next time I have deja vu, I'm going to have to try that. Try it, yeah. The problem is if you get too analytical, it just, boom, it's over. <laughs> I know. I'm afraid I'm going to have deja vu, and then think of the book, and then it'll be over, and then I I'll be know, like, damn. I know. See, you'll never get to experience that. <laughs> You also uh, you take a really nice look at ancient religions as a window to the new science and how um, they were sort of on the same track we are yeah. now, but we have you know instruments and and and, and uh, uh, you know uh, right laboratory yeah exactly sure microscopes and this that and the other thing. What can what can ancient religion teach us about uh, new science or at least what what they they thought and that kind of thing. I think it's, they were all talking about the same stuff. I just think it, it all came down to language and semantics. And if you look at the basic beliefs of most major religions and, and most metaphysical traditions, you know, they all believe in a fundamental source of energy, whether yeah. they call it God or Allah or Chi or whatever. There is a belief in a foundational creative force which we can now say, well, gee, that's the zero-point field. And you hear, you know, you, you'll you hear references to other worlds or um, in my father's house are many mansions. I love that quote because it reminds me of parallel universes, other dimensions. Um, ancient religions talk about accessing different levels of reality. Well, now we're being told that those different levels of reality do exist. So if you go back and you look at the most, without the, the doctrine, if you just look at the core teachings, it's very metaphysical, it's very cutting edge. Um, Hermetica, you know, the ancient Greeks were very much into, they had such a an amazing understanding of the, both the cosmic and the quantum and how as above, so below, and how the laws that applied to one applied to the other and just this amazing understanding. But what you have to do is separate all the doctrine and the dogma and just go to the core teaching. And it sounds an awful lot like you're reading about quantum physics. Exactly. And sort of uh, one social sort of dilemma, I guess you could say, is that as we get closer and closer to figuring everything out, um, there's always sort of that worry that maybe we shouldn't be figuring it out or maybe that if, once we figure things out, we're going to end up, you know, making a nuclear bomb out of multiple oh, dimensions. Exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you think uh, that, that we'll be able to to uh, harness that knowledge without destroying ourselves, or is that really the, the crux of, of uh, human evolution? And we always seem to get too big for our britches, and, yeah. and then we need, we're taken down a few notches. I don't think we're ever going to understand everything because I don't think 
we were meant to. I think if we did, we would evolve to a different type of consciousness. Um, and maybe that's what happens after you die. But I also think that if we are being told that the universe itself seems to have an element of consciousness, and it is a creative element, and it is a transformative element, that would mean that there's no way we could understand the truth because it's constantly recreating itself, which means that there's constantly a new truth that needs to be uncovered. And it seems like a lot of times we, we think we know the facts about something and then somebody comes along with a new fact and that just overturns everything that we thought we understood. I do think we're going to understand a lot more than we do now, but I don't know that we're ever going to be able to say, aha, I get it. I get what reality is and what what's going on here. <laughs> and, and you say that you think we're going to understand how these things work. In a, in a sort of practical sense, you know, um, I forget, there was an expression somebody used, but like, how's it, how's it going to affect the price of, uh, of exactly. a loaf of bread? How yeah. do you think these, you know, if we were to, you know, prove, if, if this, let's say, for instance, if this, if uh, this CERN lab comes up with the string and it's okay, right. the string is real, uh, what is, how does that affect the price of the loaf of bread? It really, you know, the only way, it's like we could, we could prove that UFOs and ghosts and strings and M-theory exist, but we still won't really know why or, <laughs> yeah. or what their purpose is. And that's where you have to kind of go on faith and have meaning in your own life. Mm -hmm. But just the discovery of a string or the landing of a UFO and little aliens get out and they wave on the, the nightly news and everybody says, aha, now we know. It's not going to change human existence except in the way that we make it meaningful to us on an individual level. And one of the ways that might happen is if we, if what quantum physics says more than anything else is that we are all connected. Mm -hmm. On the quantum level, every particle is connected, every wave, everything is connected. And if we prove different things like string theory or ghosts or whatever, what we could try to get out of that is the fact that we're all connected to each other, you know, we're all linked somehow, energy, matter, whatever. And could we please start treating each other a little bit better? <laughs> and our planet. That's the only real meaningful, um, you know, that the application, I guess, that you yeah. could make. But it's not going to change the fact that you still have to get up and go to work and do your laundry. It exactly. might open your mind and make you feel more excited about life, maybe not fear death so much. and But you still got to go do all that other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to change. Yeah. And do you think that uh, as this science gets more advanced, then how do you see the paranormal phenomenon coming into effect in a sense that, like, as they get more advanced in the science, one day they're going to be like, oh, wait a minute, that's how ghosts happen, that sort of thing? I think that could happen, although one of the real interesting things that's coming out of paranormal research now mm -hmm. is the connection with human consciousness. And, um, you know, guys like Nick Redfern talk about this. Could we be consciously involved in the creation of some of these events? UFOs, aliens, ghosts, you know, monsters and spectral creatures. I think we could prove the structure or the how be 
behind a ghost sighting. Okay, this is how their the energy is synchronizing at this particular frequency, and the environment has to be this way, and the climate has to be this way, yeah. and the you know the electromagnetic field. Ha we could get all that down, but there now seems to be a new element that's added in, and that's the observer. Exactly, and yeah. that goes back to quantum physics. How are we, as the observer, affecting the outcome of the experiment, even with a UFO sighting? And yeah. that's really interesting. And and sort of, uh, you mentioned in the book too, kind of like how the hardcore skeptics don't ever see UFOs because uh, their their consciousness does not allow for it. Well, you know, it's funny because J. Allen Hynek was a real skeptic until he got, you know, was made in charge of Project Blue Book. I don't think he ever had a sighting, though. Don't think I read that he ever had a sighting, but he became a believer just by seeing all of the evidence. I think a hardcore skeptic, if they could have an experience, it would be involuntary. Yeah. Then again, subconsciously, maybe they're asking for it. You know, they want to prove that they're right. You know, we want to be right all the time. <laughs> and then what happens is the brain creates that neural pathway for that experience to be acceptable. Another the way I was sort of looking at the at the previous question in a sense was that like if we like you said if we could we could maybe figure out um, all the elements that come into effect to create a ghost, if you will. Right. Do you think once we get one? Once we nail down one paranormal phenomenon, like if we can prove ghosts and, and how it comes about and everything, do you have a feeling that maybe that might start a domino effect where uh, then we can start looking at the other things and all of a sudden everything will become exposed? It might because I think if it's all involving, what it seems to all be involved with is the transfer of energy, uh, different types of matter that are being able to manifest in different ways, yeah. either in a, a time anomaly or an, uh, a UFO sighting or, you know, a lot of people say they look like a projection. Who knows? could be a holographic projection, mm -hmm. a ghost, a cryptozoological creature. If, if something is going on that involves the crosstalk of energy and matter from one universe or one dimension or one level of reality into ours, and we can peg down the mechanism that opens that door, I'm sure it's going to explain a whole host of stuff and possibly some paranormal stuff that we've never even imagined is out there. Oh, no. Because it's kind of like once you know how to unlock the door and open it, yeah. then you can let what's on the other side come in or not. <laughs> yeah. And, and there could be stuff on the other side of that door that we haven't even, we don't even have a concept for. And uh, well, I guess what about what about that sort of uh, idea too? That that it might be dangerous to to fiddle with this kind of thing. Sort of like how people say you shouldn't play with a Ouija board. Um, exactly. These, I think. Yeah. Again, I think. Yeah, you're right. We could be toying with, you know, negative energy or <laughs> negative forces. But I think a lot of that might come down to the consciousness of the observer again. Uh, the intention. I mean, if the intention is to do something bad with this knowledge, that's up to the person who's trying to open the door. Um, people always ask me, do you believe in demons and devils and things like that? I don't know that I believe that there are demons. I do believe that there's negative energy. There's negative states of matter. There's destruction. There's destructive energy. There are destructive forces, and but we're the ones that put meaning to those. However, I can't say with 100% certainty that there aren't negative entities that are going to come through and mess up our lives. And I would be nervous about 
playing around with that. So, you know, maybe we're only being given, we're all, things are being revealed to us a little bit at a time because that's all we really are emotionally and psychologically equipped to handle. Where do you see all of this cutting-edge science going um, in the in the near future, in the distant future, um, where, where we might be headed in with all this? Two directions seem to be really coming out of it. One is to try to find practical applications. Like yeah. with the zero-point field, can we do something with that energy for yeah. practical purposes? And the other one, the real big one, is consciousness research. Everything. Everything exciting that is happening is, seems to be going off in that direction. There actually is a third tangent, and that's uh, quantum computing and nanotechnology. That's real exciting. And I think, you know, at some point the three of them are going to be converging. But the consciousness research is the hottest, most exciting thing right now because we're starting to learn just how much power we have as co-creators in our reality. And, I mean, that's exciting. Definitely. Yeah. You said, like, how we well, probably won't ever really get to uh, a definitive answer. Does that make a theory of everything pretty much a, uh, uh, an endless uh, uh, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow in the sense that... that I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. You can come up with a theory of everything for one point in time, but then as more is revealed... You have to adjust we've got to We've got to tweak it. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's going to be an ongoing quest... There you go, yeah. Yeah, the holy grail that is never quite attainable. And also here I saw on your website that you have a new book coming out, uh, Super Volcano. Super Volcano. And it's co-written with your dad, which My is really dad. awesome. Talk, uh -huh. about, uh, talk about Super Volcano and, and how you ended up writing a book with your dad. Well, we always wanted to write something together. I'm a big earth science buff, having mm -hmm. grown up with a geophysicist father. So we decided to write about a particular supervolcano called Toba that erupted about 75,000 years ago, and it literally almost drove the human species to extinction. Oh, wow. And it created what's called a population bottleneck, uh, literally took the human population, which was a little over 100,000, down to estimates are between two and 8,000 individuals. Oh, wow. And we're going to show all kinds of genetic and geological evidence that Toba not only altered the climate and, and drastically changed, um, you know, the way the Earth looked, but that it changed the course of hum human evolution, and every single person alive today is a descendant, a genetic direct descendant of a survivor of Toba. Where was the volcano again? It was in Sumatra, Indonesia. Oh, weird, where the, uh, where the yeah. tsunami happened, too. Oh, yeah, oh, that area is just full of... Icky stuff, oh, earthquakes no. and tsunamis and massive volcanoes. And we're also going to talk about the possibility of another supervolcanic eruption, uh, possibly Yellowstone, which is on everybody's lips nowadays, mm -hmm. or Long Valley, California. And we're going to speculate as to what that scenario might look like. Oh, and whether cool. or not we could survive it. It's really exciting. We're right in the middle of it. Awesome. It'll be out at the end of August. Oh, great. Cool. Yeah. Definitely. We'll have to have you back for that. Oh, I would love it. It's fun. Yeah, fun stuff to talk about. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, well, you said you get the book coming out at the end of August, Super Volcano, co-written with your dad. Um, 
Is there anything else coming up on the horizon that you want to mention, speaking engagements or anything exciting like that? Go to my website. I, you know, everything will be on there awesome. or on the blog. And hopefully, once I finish the volcano book, I'm going into a third book. I can't talk too much about it now. Nice. All right. I haven't signed, but it is a very popular metaphysical subject. I will say. Oh boy. And uh, I'll let you know as soon as that's a done deal. Awesome. Awesome. But yeah, I'm. I always make my calendar, and people can always contact me through the website. I'm, Great. Great. And I the answer every email. <laughs> oh, awesome. I know that for a fact. That's yeah. <laughs> um, and the website is Marie D. Jones, M-A-R-I-E-D-J-O-N-E-S.com, and science.blogspot.com, spelled with a P, P-S-I-E-N-C-E.blogspot.com. Have you run into a lot of problems with people mispronouncing the name Absolutely. and trying to figure it out? It, you know, it looks great on paper and on the book cover, but, yeah, it's P-Science? P-Science? <laughs> it, it, <laughs> it was actually my publisher's choice to use that word. I was kind of fighting it, saying, no, no, nobody will know how to pronounce it. Has that expression been around for a while? Uh, uh, I, now I'm going to butcher P-Science. <laughs> I just call it science. Yeah, science, because, you know, when we talk about psi, psi activity, the P is silent. The term psi has been around forever. I've only seen science maybe one or two times used so it's it's not something that's well now maybe it will be but <laughs> it so. wasn't used yeah well it's a it's a really uh it embodies the spirit really of of the book too in a sense because the p the p is silent like the paranormal is silent, right exactly silent to the but it's merging world. with science exactly yeah. <laughs> so so it all works together uh marie thank you very much for being on the program the book of course oh where can people get the book Everywhere. Awesome. Brick and mortar bookstores, anywhere online. Everywhere books are sold, from what I understand. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Marie, thank you for being on the show. The book is Science, P-S-I-E-N-C-E, How New Discoveries in Quantum Physics and New Science May Explain the Existence of Paranormal Phenomena. If you're a fan of the esoteric, you got to read this book. It'll catch you up to speed with what the mainstream science is doing and how it applies to esoteric research. Marie, it's a fascinating book. Like I said, it really educated me on a lot of stuff that I was only privately aware of. Well, so thank you. I appreciate that a lot, and thank you very much for being on the show. Oh, well, thank you for having me. There you have it, folks. That does it for this week's edition of Manal of America Audio. Big, big thanks to Marie Jones for coming on the show. You can find out more information on the book Science at www.science.blogspot.com, P-S-I-E-N-C-E.blogspot.com or at Marie's formal website, www.mariedjones.com, M-A-R-I-E-D-J-O-N-E-S.com. Moving right along, it's time now for Banal of America Audio listener feedback, and this week's letter comes from Jason in Missouri. Here's what Jason had to say. Tim, I just want to tell you how much I enjoy your show. I found it during Season 1 and have continued to follow it. I think you do a terrific job not only bringing on great guests, but asking them intelligent questions. I've listened to a number of esoteric talk programs for quite a few years, and think yours is one of the most well done. I appreciate the fact that you went beyond the normal topics of the genre and interviewed the author of a book about Philo T. Farnsworth. Among other things, I teach a mass communication history class at a university, and had just finished my lecture on the history of television when I heard the interview. I will incorporate your interview, or at least parts of it, into my course next semester. I also enjoyed your interview with Mac Tonys. I've interviewed Mac a couple times over the past few years and have enjoyed his take on Mars and crypto-terrestrials. He's a really interesting guy. I expect some big things out of Mac in the coming years. I guess this was just a long way to say thanks for your program. From Jason in Missouri. 
Thank you very much for writing in, Jason. I really appreciate the feedback, and I am humbled by your kind words there at the beginning of the letter. We do our best here on Banal of America Audio to set ourselves apart from the esoteric talk radio genre, and hopefully our great listeners have noticed that. Speaking to the Philo Farnsworth episode of BOA Audio from back in February, I'm a huge fan of that episode. I'm also tremendously happy with the way we have spaced out a variety of different topics over the course of this season. I'm just amazed by the sheer variety that we've managed to cover, and I'm glad that it has resonated with the listening audience. Thank you for writing in, Jason. I appreciate it. Keep us updated on your mass communication course next semester. Let us know if the BOA audio made the cut on the syllabus. I would really uh, get a kick out of that. If you would like to be a part of Ben All of America audio listener feedback, here's how you go about doing it. Go to benallofamerica.com, click the contact button in the top right-hand corner of the screen. That will give you the information on how to get in touch with me. Or simply write to boaaudio at hotmail.com, boaaudio at hotmail.com. Either one of those methods will put your correspondence on the road to being featured on Ben All of America audio listener feedback. Next, we thank the fantastic BanalofAmerica.com staff, Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Ralph Molesworth, and Tina Senna. Doing something a little bit different this week, let me give you a rundown of what we had for you this past week from the BOA staff. Tina Senna talked about alien invasion, fact or crap. She looked at the alien invasion theories from a number of different angles and tried to figure out, really, is there anything to it or not? Leslie's Gray Matters on Tuesday covered the Art Bell Lifetime Achievement Award from her perspective, being a longtime Art Bell listener. She was there from the very beginning. And Chiron on Wednesday had a really cool look at the Zodiac Killer and the coverage of this Zodiac Renaissance by the esoteric media. Those were all this past week. We got a ton of stuff coming up for you next week at banalofamerica.com. The BOA staff is putting out top-notch reading material week in and week out, and as I've been saying for the last few weeks, if you're only listening to Banal of America Audio, you're only getting half the story. you got to check out the columns. Big thanks to the staff at BOA for your help and support with the audio series and the website. BanalofAmerica.com, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. If you're a long-time Banal of America Audio listener, or an appreciative newcomer, and you want to help support the audio series and the website, there's a simple way to go about doing it. You go to banalofamerica.com, take a look on the right-hand side, you'll see a PayPal button, you click it, and you make a donation. No donation is too small. All donations go towards keeping BOA Audio up and running and available for all our great listeners worldwide. So if you can, make a donation. It would be greatly appreciated. Next week on the program, we have something very different for you. First of all, it's a surprise. We're not going to even announce what it is until Wednesday, but I will tease some of it for you. It is an experimental edition of Banal of America Audio. It's going to have at least five guests, two of them excerpted from previous BOA Audio episodes, the other three fresh material with updates and coverage of a specific theme tying into Esoterica. It's not the Phoenix Lights. It's not Roswell. It's something a little bit lighter, And as I said, it's an experimental edition of BOA Audio, but it's a theme special, and I'll be interested in hearing the feedback on this one when we roll it out next weekend. In addition to the big special theme episode next week on the program, it's also going to be a double banal weekend once again. 
I've been invited by former BOA Audio guest Greg Bishop to appear on his program, Radio Mysterioso, and I, of course, have accepted the invitation. April 1st, 2007, April Fool's Day, what a way to celebrate. Benal will be giving his second interview. It'll be my first ever live interview, and Greg promises that he will open up the phone lines so you can potentially get a chance to call in and talk to me and I'll be answering questions from callers. I'm already scared about that. I was going to preview it next week on the program, but I figured by the time that some people got the MP3s for next week's program, it would already have passed, so I figure I'll give the plug this week. Barring any unforeseen circumstances, I will be appearing on Radio Mysterioso, April 1st, 2007, 8 to 10 p.m. Pacific Time, 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern Time, be there, be square. You can find out more information on the program at excludedmiddle.com, E-X-C-L-U-D-E-D-M-I-D-D-L-E.com, or at killradio.org, K-I-L-L-R-A-D-I-O.org. But all on Radio Mysterioso. Check it out. On that note, folks, it's time for me to sign off. Thank you so much for listening. Until you hear from me next week, this is Tim Benal, signing off. <laughs>